Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Sublime. This is the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality, to seek the sublime, or really, I should say, to uncover and reveal the sublime in the middleness of everyday life. So that includes your work, your relationships, your uh, periods of solitude, your time in nature, your time in a city, wherever you find yourself, the sublime is a potential awaiting to be discovered. So that's the aim here. And as your host, my name is Josh Summers, and I'm really happy to have you here today. And as your host, I try to walk through and and explore with you uh, several of the both practices and obstacles that come up in in, uh, an everyday spirituality. And today, I'm going to be giving you a talk where I reflect on a passage from the great forest teacher, or the great Thai forest teacher, uh, Ajahn Chah, who lived and taught in the last century. Ajahn Chah said this, it's a very provocative statement that I really like. He says, about this mind, in truth, it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of those things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things. It forgets itself. And then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful he says later, just this, just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So in many, in one level, uh, we're, we're endeavoring in our practice to uncover this original mind that's already peaceful. And one of my ambitions or one of my aspirations as a practitioner slash teacher is to uh, point to this original mind in a way that isn't so hard, that isn't such difficult practice, that we actually make it easier, more accessible, you might even say more within reach, that the everyday sublime, the original mind, the peaceful state, the unshakable stillness uh, is right here, ready to be discovered. And this fall, as I mentioned last episode, this fall I will be taking Uh, listeners in this podcast and members of the online Sangha, which I'll speak about shortly, I'll be taking folks through a a very gradual progression of meditative instruction that will essentially prepare the mind and heart to come to this natural recognition on its own. And this meditative progression will really be development and exploration of both shamatha or calm abiding meditation and vipassana meditation or insight meditation, meditation that promotes the capacity to see clearly and in really seeing our experience clearly, um, opening to the insights that bubble from that clarity of perception. So uh, this talk will be a continuation in that series of reflections on this path. Um, And before I give you the talk, I just want to say that one of the most common questions that Terry and I receive, Terry's my, my, my life partner and my practice partner and my teaching partner, 
um, who teaches qigong and yin yoga and yang yoga in our sangha offerings. But one of the most common questions that we receive is how can listeners support our podcast? How can listeners support our work? So if you're interested in supporting our work and or availing yourself of the work we produce, um, the best way you can do that is by becoming a member to our Riverbird Sangha. Uh, and the Riverbird Sangha intentionally is a practice community that, in our mind, ties together a, a form of an integral practice. And by that I mean it's, a, it's not just a one uh, technique practice. So we're not just emphasizing meditation. We're not just emphasizing yoga. We're emphasizing a suite of practices, tra uh, contemplative, transformative practices that done together in a low-key way facilitate personal growth and transformation. And, and so again, our, our suite of practices include yin yoga, qigong, yang yoga, and meditation, as well as journaling and or reflective writing. And we have found that a combination of those four, five practices together, uh, done in a relaxed, low-key, but consistent way, really does produce a, a, a very palpable and, um, and, and ultimately valuable transformation of being. And, and many of our members have just shared with us over and over again how much they appreciate this practice support, how much they find that their own practice has a, a greater continuity and depth of practice. And that's exactly what we're aiming to help support. So with your membership, you will be able to practice with us live on a weekly basis. Many people do that. And then many people also practice independently along with us through the recordings we archive in our online library. And that library is, is really uh, growing day by day and is quite deep now. We have over a hundred classes that you can practice along with. We have uh, workshops archived there that I've given on how yin yoga harmonizes the qi through the perspective of different Chinese medical organs such as the liver and the heart. Um, and I'll be have, putting more of those workshops into the library. Terry has produced a number of tutorials that break down common poses, common uh, movement patterns, common qigong exercises. So there's a lot in that library to support your practice. So all that comes with your membership, but of course that might feel like a big ask, that might feel like a big move for you right now. And if you'd like an easier way to support the programming here, uh, just take a class with us. You can take a drop-in class for $10, you could buy a book, the Buddhist playbook that I co-wrote with Michael Brooks for $10. These are very easy ways to chip in and support the show and enrich your own practice in meaningful ways. So um, thank you in advance if you avail yourself of any of that, and I look forward to hearing from you on how it goes on your journey. So tomorrow when your uh, sit bones hit the zafu or your feet hit the sticky mat, and you think to yourself, I wish I had a practice community to uh, really support me in my practice and, and help me go deeper in my journey. If that sounds like you, we look forward to having you join. You can just head over to www.joshsummers.net forward slash sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. So again, when, you, when your sit bones hit the zafu, your meditation cushion, when your feet come to the yoga mat and you want a little more inspiration, a little more guidance, a little more support in general, we look forward to working with you. And now, without further ado, I bring you today's talk, The Key to Stillness, Part 1.
so to pick up from where we were last week, um, last week I tried to put what we've been up to in context. And, and in some ways, what I'm trying to explore this fall with you is a, is a more expanded view or a more detailed view of the contemplative path or the contemplative map of the path. And um, the way I tried to frame it last week is that really for the last year, um, I've been trying to emphasize qualities of good relationship towards experience that we can cultivate in the meditative practice. So being gentle, being kind, being tolerant, interested, curious, um, and bringing those qualities to bear whenever we encounter many of the familiar uh, and very common difficult energies that we will inevitably ex experience when we when we look deeply into ourselves and when we look deeply into our heart. And <clears throat> if I were to summarize the, the emphasis of the teaching and instruction that I've been giving, it's, it's emphasizing the relational side of the path, the, the, the aspects and the teachings of the, of the path that relate to how do we develop and understand our relationship to ourselves, to our experience, to our life, to others? What's, what's the quality of our relationship like? And this fall, I'm going to be transitioning a little bit, but um, and I would frame it in a way that instead of seeing it as a different practice, um, I would like you to maybe see it as a, an aspect of the practice that transcends and includes everything else I've been saying. So this is not to ex exclude or contradict anything I've been saying. It's to build upon and expand um, the, the, the clarity of, of some of the teaching that relates to what we can start to really see and understand about our experience. And this, this, this side of the path, I would say, speaks to uh, the perceptual development of the journey. So there's one arm you could say is the relational side, and one, one aspect is the perceptual side. And I would even say that these are kind of the yin and yang of the, of the contemplative path, that the more we look into how we're relating to our experience, by default, we'll start to see things more clearly. And then when we um, hopefully you might you'll experience this this fall as we home in on really taking a sharp look at how we're seeing and, and what we're seeing in our experience that this emphasis on the, the sort of the clear seeing side of the, or the perceptual side of the practice will highlight the relational side even more clearly so these these two work in tandem or work in, in a yin-yang relationship to with each other very nicely and um in the context of this perceptual emphasis of the teaching, um, this is where I'll be drawing from my own practice um, in uh, what is considered to be early Buddhist meditation, which is a style of practice that is sometimes defined by the terms shamatha and vipassana. So shamatha is an aspect of meditative contemplative practice where we endeavor to steady our minds that's the way it's often framed, that we endeavor to steady or, or stabilize our minds so that our mind becomes uh, not so scattered, 
and capable of seeing clearly into the nature of experience. And that seeing clearly into the nature of experience is the Vipassana side. Vipassana means to see clearly. And it also means insight, which is the insight that arises in our minds and hearts when we see experience clearly through the lens of Vipassana. And, so, and, and I'll be um, trying to speak to that throughout the fall, that, that both of this, the steadiness and the clear seeing relate to specific dynamics or aspects of uh, uh, the contemplative process. They don't, they don't necessarily relate to all things that we can uh, ex- explore and examine in our life. But they, they do give a particular lens when, when used together. The shamatha and the pasana come together. They confer in us a particular lens through which we can kind of understand ourselves and our experience in a, in a different way. And generations of people who have applied this process to themselves have discovered that it reveals a peace that's independent of conditions within one's own heart. So that the, this is the good news, is that we're, we're really starting to get into the, the, um, the, the deep wellspring of, of what the contemplative journey offers. And um, in, in my own training and in my own practice, they're sort of the same thing, but in my own journey, I have found um, two particular traditions of early Buddhism to be very um, inspiring and clarifying. And those two traditions happen to be the main two Asian traditions that are, I think, represented most significantly in the Theravada Insight Western Dharma uh, schools. So Insight Meditation Society, Spirit Rock, both of these uh, sort of mothership centers for uh, insight practice in in, in the West, these are both rooted in two particular Asian traditions. One is from Thailand, and that's called the, the, the Thai forest tradition, which is found in Northeast Thailand. And one of the, the very famous teachers from that tradition is called Ajahn Chah. Ajahn in the Thai tradition just means teacher, and Chah was his monastic name. So it's like monk Chah. Um, and I never worked with Ajahn Chah directly, but I, I, I uh, did work with two of his Western senior disciples or Western senior monks, Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Suchito. And um, I have really liked that tradition for its softness, its gentleness, and the emphasis that it places on, on contemplative wisdom. It sort of really tries to hold the big picture in mind all the time. But the other Asian tradition that I've drawn from and that IMS and the Western tradition has drawn from is the Burmese style or Burmese system of of Vipassana. And um, I don't mean to suggest that there's one way to do Vipassana in Burma. Um, There's, to my knowledge, at least 50 different approaches to doing Vipassana practice. There's 50 different styles of meditative instruction that um, are very popular in Burma. I worked with one called the Mahasi method um, and the other major method from Burma that um, is very popular throughout the world is the Goenka method. And these are just systems named after the, you know, the, the famous 
evangelists of this of this is either the developers or the evangelists of the, of the system. Um, so you'll be hearing me mention these two traditions uh, frequently: either the Burmese system or the teacher Upandita that I worked with, or um, Ajahn Chah. That's all preamble in a way. I want to share with you another quote from Ajahn Chah because it, in some ways, contains the all the strands and all the elements of the, um, the, the, the style of practice that I'll be sharing with you this fall. And I think you may even heard me share this quote before. It's one of my favorites. But Ajahn Chah said this, about this mind, in truth, it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. And within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. Sense impressions come and trick it into happiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of those things. That gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood coming to deceive us. The untrained mind gets lost and follows these things, it forgets itself. And then we think that it is weak or upset or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful. Our practice is simply to see the original mind. So we must train the mind to know those sense impressions and not get lost in them. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Now, he didn't use the word shamatha, vipassana, or even metta. But maybe by the end of this fall, your, your ear will be trained to hear what aspects of that passage refer to shamatha, what aspects of that passage refer to vipassana. And if you're able to do that, I'll feel like I, in some ways I've, I've done part of my job. But this passage itself is pretty provocative. And that's part of the reason I like it. It has this provocative nature. The mind itself is already peaceful. That it's not peaceful is because the mind follows moods. Sense impressions come along and trick it. The mind gets lost in those sense impressions and then thinks it's identified with those sense impressions and 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 it is essentially held within the imp implications of whatever impression is occurring so if there's sadness there we feel sad if there's joy we feel we, we, we experience ourselves as joyful we get deceived as Ajahn Chah is saying by the moods that come and go so in relationship to the development of clear perception, most meditation systems begin with a very sincere, concerted, and I would say forceful effort to encourage the meditator to become steady within the present moment. To get to, to come to presence where the person knows that they're 
awake or aware in the present moment, to not be lost in a daydream or a trance or some fantasy. The, the phrase that is often used is to not get lost in thought. Lost, being lost in thought is, is tantamount to failing to meditate. So most systems really emphasize bringing your mind, your consciousness, your attention into the present moment and, and keeping it there. So and I know many of you probably worked with tools or practices that emphasize that. The whole idea of anchoring your attention to the breath, anchoring your attention to the body, anchoring your, your attention to anything is just that, an endeavor to ground or root consciousness in the present, whereby essentially the, the, the knowing mind or the awareness won't get lost in sense impressions. Anymore. It will know the sense impressions, but not get swept away by them and fooled by them or, or lost in them to the point that it can't see their nature. It can't see how they behave. <clears throat> so, the reason I'm saying most systems start there, and, and this is where we're picking up, is because in really in my own practice and then in, in talking to lots and lots of people about their experience of practice, when they overly endeavor to be in the present moment and try to keep themselves there, every experience of not being connected to the present becomes a a really it's like a, a paper cut a, a spiritual paper cut <laughs> so you're meditating and you're just getting lacerated every time your mind wanders with all these very sharp painful stressful paper spiritual paper cuts of, of wandering and all that struggle just always struck me as as um ultimately completely um unhelpful it would be one thing if you struggled and it actually worked to to, to provide a, a a solid ability to be present, but it, it kind of just turned me at least into a very neurotic meditator. I was trying, 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 but I'm just always frustrated with my lack of presence. So um, the good news was that I only really encountered that style of, of practice through a book called Mindfulness in Plain English by Bhante Gunaratana. And when I started going on formal retreats, the wise teachers that I had from the beginning emphasized relaxation. Don't struggle to be present, just relax in the present. So this is where you know the, the work we've been doing together over the last year around yin meditation is really just trying to establish this foundation of relaxation with what's happening. And then within that broad experience of relaxed presence to both wandering and wakefulness. Now, when we become awake, we can start to look more closely at what we're experiencing when we're conscious and awake. So just because I'm going to be emphasizing the side of experience when we're present now, when we're awake, I do not want this to tie anyone's shoes up around or, or or get them tightened up around the fact that they will not be present the entire time in the sitting. So that that's a given. No, nobody I know's attention is 100% rooted in the present moment during a during a normal sitting. At least people that are living normal lives. That's just not going to happen. If you're a monastic and you're sitting every day 
for several hours, sure, you might have a string of sittings where your mind doesn't wander at all. But those are very special conditions. And in everyday conditions, we should, I don't want to have anyone hold that expectation. So the expectation is your mind will wander. And now the addition we'll add to the instructions is around how do we investigate the windows of time and, and the windows of experience that occur when we're awake to them, when we're present. And that wakefulness is just occurring naturally. So when we naturally find ourselves awake, not through striving to be there, not through anchoring ourselves, not through discipline, but through relaxed presence, when we naturally come to wakefulness, then we can really now look at and engage with the shamatha vipassana side of practice. Now, tonight, what I'm going to emphasize is the shamatha side of stillness. And in fact, the when this gets produced as a podcast, the title of this talk will be The Key to Stillness. The key to stillness, part one. Next week will be part two. The key to stillness, and I and this is something that I wish I had heard either more directly or that I paid more attention to it um, at the beginning, because understanding what kind of stillness we're talking about, what kind of steadiness of presence we're talking about, will dramatically influence, I think, how you navigate what goes on in your practice or how you work with what goes on or comes up in your practice. So when I say the word stillness, when you hear the word stillness, I'd ask you what comes to mind? And it's a rhetorical question for now. What comes to mind? Most people, and I'll, I'll fill in the gap here, um, I think most people, when they think about stillness, they think about their mind not moving with thought, or that more specifically, they feel that their, their thoughts become still. That's actually a better way to say it, a more specific issue that I think comes up. People think that if they're going to succeed to become still in the meditation, it means their thinking becomes quiet or that their body is not experiencing any agitation or that the environment is not in any way disruptive. There's no, like, and so you know, I hear it, people send me emails sometimes and this is, I'm by no means pointing fingers at anyone, but you know, I hear it in various ways through conversations and sort of the emails sometimes that I receive, but people say, oh, you know, I was meditating and then my dog distracted me. So the dog would be, it could be perceived as a, um, uh, a destroyer of stillness. <laughs> and you, 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 wherever you are, you probably have your, your, um, your pet, literally pun intended, but your, your pet destroyer of stillness. What is it that agitates you when you're practicing? So Within this idea of stillness, it, it, it seems to be suggesting that somehow there's an experience of sensation or experience of thought or no thought or experience in the environment that in itself is still. Like, there's, like the, those conditions somehow collaborate with what you want them to be so that you can recognize stillness occurring. Now, 
I have no issue with that kind of stillness. I have no issue with the, with the mind not chattering. I have no issue with the dog not yammering for something. I have no issue with the body not being agitated. Those kinds of stillness are great. But those are not, right, this is the key to it, the key to the lesson. Those kinds of stillness are not the kind of stillness that I think is being intoned within the, the contemplative path, at least within Buddhism. What I, the, the stillness that um, I think the contemplatives refer to, and this is something to just reflect on, is a stillness that is more like the container that holds sounds, sensations, thoughts, feelings. So all the agitated thoughts come and go within the container of the mind. And I'm, I'm, I'm using the word container. I could use other words from the spaciousness or emptiness are used. Those terms, I think because of their intangibility, lead people into some sometimes some difficult conceptual uh, cul-de-sacs. So uh, a perfectly good way to refer to this is the container of the mind, the mind that's containing and holding the various experiences that we notice when we're paying attention. So rather than seeking stillness of thought or seeking stillness of sound, or seeking stillness of the body. Tonight's practice, when we come to it, will be an exploration around what is moving, or as I love the word from uh, that I think Alan Watts uses, which is what is jiggling? What is the, the jiggling vibratory bit of our experience? And what is the still part of our experience? And, and I'm gonna keep it very broad tonight when I give the instructions when we sit, but that's essentially the, the idea is when we, when we, in those moments of practice, when we come to a natural sense of presence, that hold that question, what's moving here? What is moving? And then if you feel into that for however many moments or minutes you'd like, just to, to be curious about the moving nature of experience, to then maybe ask from time to time the question, what is still within this moving? What, what, is, what, what is there a still element? Is there a dynamic of stillness? Is there an experience of stillness or a sense of stillness? Or is there a container of stillness within this perceived movement or that's holding this perceived movement? And I, I could say more about it, but I'll, I'll, I'll pause in a moment. I'll just leave you with the, the reason I'm emphasizing this is because uh, it's this, this kind of stillness is, is very open and broad. And it's not the kind of stillness that you might try to develop if you're trying to keep your attention on a fine point like your breath. Like if you, if you try to rest your attention on the head of a needle, or the tip of a needle, you know, it's a very hard point to balance on. But when we explore stillness in relationship to what's moving, we're not looking at a narrow conception of stillness. It's a really the context of our experience or the container of our experience that is already still uh, in relationship to 
the kinds of sense impressions, moods, sounds, feelings that come and go within it. Okay, I hope you enjoyed today's talk. Uh, it's a it's a really, for me personally, it's a very uh, rewarding theme. Uh, this may sound strange, but when I was a kid, I really liked magic tricks. And one of the things I loved about magic tricks was figuring out what the key to the trick was. What was the what was the the deception at play that allowed the illusion of a of a of a magic trick to be performed or executed? And once I figured it out. I also liked sharing it with others. And uh, this key to stillness that I've been reflecting on and will reflect on next week, uh, understanding how to recognize and access stillness is so much easier than most people make it out to be. And that little kid in me just loves and revels in, in sharing it and, and, and seeing the delight and ultimate freedom that people taste themselves when they feel it themselves, when they, when they recognize it in their own experience. So I'm really looking forward to continuing on this, this series of reflections this fall, and we look forward to practicing with you in this series. Um, if you Again, if you'd like to join the Sangha, if you'd like to support us, if you'd like to enrich and deepen your own practice with continuity and support, please head over to joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A, and uh, there's a lot of resources we have that we'll be sending to you and, and, and providing to help you deepen and come to recognize your own original mind of stillness, peace, and sublime engagement. And until next time, I'll just say, please stay safe out there, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take good care.